Hello, everybody. Do you have an idea for a true crime podcast? I publish true crime podcasts at my YouTube channel, Leader One Studios. I currently have 23,000 subscribers who are always looking for new true crime podcasts to listen to. This is an opportunity to build an audience quickly. If you're interested in joining the Leader One Podcast Network, send an email to morgansvariety at gmail.com and we can discuss the details. Hello everybody. Gratitude to everybody for listening and additional heaps of gratitude to everybody who donates to the Patreon account. You keep the show going with your donations. As I keep the expenses paid, the more content I can create. You can donate at www.patreon.com slash leader one. Or if you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can send one through PayPal at morganrector331 at hotmail.com. Remember, there is no minimum donation, no maximum donation. If $1 a month is all you feel like you can manage, especially in these difficult times, it's still appreciated. Thank you for everything and enjoy the show. Welcome to Human Monsters. James William Miller was born on February 2nd, 1940, in Truro, South Australia. His family were indigent. He had five siblings. Struggling to provide necessities for all six children was nearly impossible for their parents, resulting in grueling and relentless deprivation. Abuse is common within crowded and impoverished families, and James ran away several times. James always refused to disclose exactly what drove him away, but whatever it was, he was desperate to escape the trauma. He struggled at school academically, and he was also a disciplined case. Seeking to straighten him out, he was enrolled in the McGill Reformatory School for Protestant Boys. This institution may have promised to correct him, but it did not bring him any kind of relief from the tortures he allegedly suffered at home. The administration governed with a heavy-handed, draconian approach. The objective was to recalibrate James into an obedient young man. He was a born rebel and no reformatory was going to change that. The only upside to attending this all-male correctional facility was that he discovered the truth about his sexual orientation. He didn't form any lasting bonds at McGill, but he found himself. When James was discharged from McGill, there was little optimism in his outlook on the future. He had no formal education and no marketable skills. He was also homeless. 
he made use of this status to toil as a freelance laborer around Australia. He was still discovering himself, and covering so much territory geographically was sure to contribute to his formation as a human being in its own right. He was paid under the table, and though it exempted him from taxes, it also enabled his employers to pay him less than his co-workers. This sort of work was seasonal, and when winter rolled around, he scrambled to find a way to keep himself fed. Seeing no alternative, he turned to crime. At first, it consisted of stealing his meals. Eventually, he took to pilfering large ticket items, like cars. He was not an especially talented criminal. He was caught and convicted several times. Among his charges were theft under $1,000, auto theft, larceny, breaking and entering, and purse snatching. In the earliest days of his history as a career criminal, there were no charges for violent crime to speak of. He committed crime to keep himself fed. In fact, he found violence distasteful. He was a recidivist, typically falling back into a life of crime after ill-fated attempts to remain in legitimate employment. The pattern of James's life was redirected after meeting Christopher Robin Worrell during one of his many stints in prison. Christopher was more appealing as a human being than James. Contrary to James's grim demeanor, Christopher was pleasant and approachable charming and friendly. He was also very handsome, and James didn't miss that detail either. The smiling face was a mask. Behind it was a cold-blooded, violent psychopath. While on parole for armed robbery, he raped a young woman, sending him straight back to the can. James was smitten. Chris didn't pick up on the undercurrent of sexual attraction initially, but he courted the man's friendship nonetheless. James approached him to engage him in a game of ping-pong, and that became the icebreaker that brought them together. James likely didn't know which parts of Chris's life's story were truth or fiction, since he was a pathological liar, as many psychopaths are. James didn't care if Chris may have lied about certain aspects of his past. All he cared about was retaining his companionship in the present and future. A week later, they were cellmates. They were practically joined at the hip. James was so taken in by Chris's charm that when he was told about the rape charge, he was incredulous. Chris had a penchant for playing practical jokes, and James assumed the rape charge resulted from some sort of sick prank. Also, Chris was so handsome, charming, and kind that James didn't see how he would have to force someone to have sex with him. Chris sold the scenario to James as a misunderstanding, partially based on his excessive consumption of alcohol the night in question. He said that the girl was also inebriated and that the encounter was consensual. This portrayal of the event did not fly with the judge, who described Chris as a depraved and disgusting human being. The truth was the girl was an underage hitchhiker he assaulted in his car. It was unlikely that he could be blackout drunk and capable of operating an automobile safely. 
Eventually, both Chris and James were transferred to Yatala Labor Prison to serve out the remainder of their sentences. This facility was more unyielding and authoritarian, but the men still spent lots of time together. James was still attracted to Chris, but did not approach him for sex or make his non-platonic feelings known. James was released before Chris. This was the downside of being released. With a prison wall standing between the two men, James felt lonely and desolate. The feelings were exacerbated due to the absence of Chris in his life. As always, he fell back into a life of crime. Whether or not he stole 4,000 pairs of sunglasses for resale on the black market to get himself caught and incarcerated with Chris once again remains unknown. The charge was nevertheless very real, and he was slapped with an 18-month sentence. He was returned to Yatala. Wherever Chris dwelled, James was sure to find contentment. Due to overcrowding, both Chris and James were released. They were now free to start a new life together, and on their terms. James moved in with his sister temporarily. Chris and James were looking for jobs and seeking an apartment to rent together. They were hired soon into their job searches. Their ability to save up for an apartment was stymied somewhat by their propensity to drink large portions of their paycheck. Not only had Chris shown no sexual interest in James, but he took full advantage of his appeal to women, and after a night of bar hopping, the men parted in two separate directions. Chris went off with a female sexual prospect, and James went home alone, with only himself as a source of companionship. Sex and drinking were Chris's raison d'etre. Staying up late, having sex, and getting drunk affected his daytime performance at the dry cleaner where he worked, and he was terminated. Eventually, Chris was hired by a roadwork gang, and he brought James on board. James was thrilled. He spent every hour of every day with the man he loved. The love was unrequited, but he was able to accept it on its platonic, undemonstrative terms. For the time being, his life was better than it had been for many years. The one issue that triggered unrest in their friendship was Chris's sexual proclivities, as reflected in his choices of adult shop merchandise. It wasn't just that Chris was straight. He was also a BDSM enthusiast. Chris was mostly aroused by fantasies of rape and complex rope bondage. This was not an especially liberal time in Australia's history, so James remained in the closet. The materials Chris so eagerly devoured made James uncomfortable. Being a psychopath, Chris was either unaware of James's discomfort or he was simply unconcerned. Either way, he kept dragging James to adult shops, and James always tagged along because it at least meant he got to spend time with the man of his dreams. Once they were home, Chris would masturbate to the materials in full view of James. James could watch or not. It mattered not to Chris. James wasn't about to protest. There was no way he would do anything to displease Chris. He didn't want to risk pushing him away. 
not after having waited so long to draw him closer. Their friendship shifted gears one day when Chris ordered James to perform oral sex on him as he perused his magazines. James was happy to comply. Chris's view of women and sexuality within the rubric of BDSM was that the rape fantasies represented the reality of what women wanted. The women who posed in the magazines were models and may have only been acting for the benefit of the spectator. Chris never considered this. The way he saw it, every woman was begging to be raped, if not in word or deed, then in spirit. Not only did he objectify women, but within the nebulous realm of his imagination, they were all victims by manufacture. There was no motion behind his sexual expression. He was only focused on his own gratification. So the ingredients of a rapist were baked into him. He would never fall in love with James. He would use him as a masturbation tool. People of both sexes have mouths, and as he saw it, he could tune James out while perusing his bondage pornography, while envisioning that a woman was on the job. Chris was a dom and James was a sub. Taking this into consideration, it didn't matter that one was gay and the other was straight. They could still satisfy the other's needs by playing the roles that felt most natural to them. For months, James existed as a mouth to fillet Chris. He was just an appliance, like a toaster. Whether or not he was aware that this represented the totality of his role in Chris's life, Chris heard no complaints from James's end. After daily blowjobs for months, Chris put an end to it. He still brought James along when he browsed through adult shops, but all sexual contact was now verboten. Deeply disappointed, James gradually worked up enough courage to ask Chris why he no longer wished to make use of his sexual utility. Chris spelled it out in black and white. He was completely heterosexual. The routine of receiving oral sex from James bore more resemblance to a jailhouse romance than anything else. James was convenient. He was the 7-Eleven of sex. He did not carry the merchandise Chris was looking for. Chris did nothing to cushion the blow. Still smarting from the rejection, James was told by Chris that he wanted them to be like brothers again. James had just been thrown irretrievably into the friend zone, and it was worse than any of the prisons in which he had been incarcerated. At least during his time at Yatala, there was a promise of emancipation. This was a life sentence. He would have drawn more comfort from the electric chair. James was devastated. But to settle with a one-sided relationship with him, as if Chris were a pop music icon and concert accessible only if one could penetrate the barricades, and that was impossible. It got worse. Occasionally, Chris would have a headache, which would put him in a foul mood. He took out his frustrations on James, not only verbally abusing him, but on occasion, he would refuse to see him altogether. Logic would tell you There was no point in loving such a person. 
But what does logic have to do with love? Aside from fencing stolen goods as hired hands from time to time, the men largely refrained from getting involved with crime since they were both on parole. That didn't mean that Chris wouldn't still devise some sort of scheme to profit from actions that would bring disadvantage to others. He lived for that shit. Now that he knew for certain that James was gay, Chris came up with an idea. They would frequent the gay nightclubs and bars in Adelaide in search of older, wealthier gay men. The objective was to bring them back to their apartment and rob them of all their money. If they threatened them with retaliation, legal or otherwise, Chris would blackmail them by stating his intention to report their homosexual activity to the police. The fallout of such an action would have been highly damaging, given the nature of Australia's social conventions in that era. They profited well from this plan. The problem was, the success was short-lived. With the gay community being small and close-knit, news of these incidents traveled fast, and they were soon banned from all the clubs and bars. Their robberies nearly afforded them a new apartment before their enterprise came to light. Chris persuaded James to use the money to purchase a car. He didn't have to twist his arm. Figuratively speaking, when Chris told James to jump, James bought a trampoline. Soon, Chris persuaded James to take him out cruising the streets in pursuit of women. James, in his beta role, represented an insurance policy to the women that they would be safe in their company. After Chris talked the pants off some girl, he would have sex with her in the car while James took a walk. Once they finished their business, James would resume his role as chauffeur, driving the girls to wherever they wanted to be. Though they weren't allowed in the gay bars and clubs, there was no rule against picking up the men who loitered outside. They didn't all know James and Chris, and for a time, they profited from robbing several of the district's gay men until Chris grew tired of the enterprise. The men were only interested in Chris sexually, being young and handsome. James was the old sad sack behind the wheel. James drove Chris around as he searched for women. Chris's sex drive was peaking. He had to have it every day now, and he ejected the word consent from his vocabulary. If a girl refused to have sex with him, he would rape her. It was James's job to talk her out of pressing charges while insisting that it was her fault it happened, since she should have known better than to get into a man's car under those circumstances. Not only was Chris's sexual appetite in overdrive, but it took on darker overtones. He was no longer satisfied with so-called vanilla sex. He brought a rope along with him whenever he sought conquests on the streets. There was a distinctive kind of pleasure that could only be gleaned from an imbalance of power. The rapes were happening with regularity now. If a girl got into his car, he was going to have sex with her, voluntarily or not. That was on the agenda written in invisible ink. Eventually, bondage and rape were not enough to satisfy Chris. Something was building inside of him. At that point, 
you'd call it danger. You can still remain safe in the presence of danger. At this point, danger was just a stem cell. It was Christmas Eve. Chris and James were walking through the streets and taking in the sights when Chris spotted a young woman named Veronica Knight. She was attractive and appealed to him greatly. Veronica bought what Chris was selling. She got into the car, taking a position in the back seat. Chris rode shotgun, giving her the false impression she was safe in the company of men who could keep it in their pants and treat her like a lady. Chris said to James, This is Veronica. I told her that we were going to show her the hills up by Adelaide, but we've got to get her back in time for her curfew. Don't want her getting in any trouble. Think that we can go for a drive and get her home in two hours, James? James looked at Veronica through the rearview mirror and said, I'm sure we'll get you back in plenty of time. Veronica was relaxing in the back seat as they made their way out of town. At one point, she said, Thanks for the ride. I was out shopping with my friend, but I got turned around. No idea where she's gone at all. Chris here promised me a lift home. Not sure that I should be going off into the hills on Christmas Eve, you know. Busy day in the morning. Chris said, It's a beaut of a night tonight. Be ashamed not to make the most of it. Secretly, James felt sorry for the girl. He knew the evening would not end well for her. He could have spared her all that by dropping her off at her destination of choice. The problem was, Chris would not like that at all. It would seriously undermine their friendship. And James didn't care for the girl at all. His desire for Chris ultimately overrode his moral scruples. Further down the road, Chris said to James, Take the road off there. It was a dirt road in a remote location. No civilization for hundreds of kilometers in every direction. Measurable by the dimensions of a broken promise. Chris gave James a wink. It was a signal, and James understood the significance. James pulled over to the side of the road. He said, Would you look at that view? James turned in Veronica and Chris's direction, but he had already disappeared from their radar. They were making out. It was getting hot and heavy. Veronica was moaning. The third wheel rolled away when James said, I'm just going for a little walk. Don't mind me. Later, Chris headed back to the car. Chris was sitting in the front seat, staring into space. No conversation, no radio. Inanimate. James was surprised to find Chris sitting alone in the car. He said, Where's Veronica? James could see that Chris was in one of his darker moods. Chris was curt, saying, She's in the back, on the floor. James looked past him, and there she was, spread out on the seat. She was pale. Red welts had been burned into her flesh with the rope. James was shocked. He said, What happened? Chris wouldn't look at him, but James was entitled to an explanation about what had transpired in his car. Chris said, I killed her. James was frantic. 
He grabbed hold of Chris's shirt. Chris pulled free with a yank. Chris got out of the car and stood toe-to-toe with James. Cut from a different bolt of cloth in every other way, James said, Why? What did you do it for? Why? The light of the moon shimmered within the reflection on the blade of the long knife in Chris's hand. James didn't know about the knife and had no idea the love of his life was a murderer. It was confirmed when Chris said, I will kill you too. Do you hear me? If you don't lay off, I will kill you too. James stepped back. It took all his potential for self-restraint to keep from going into shock. As they drove away, Chris said, calmly, Don't ask me why I killed her. I don't know myself. Chris didn't recognize this man. He had seen him in his darker moods, but this was pure evil. Panicking now, James said, What what do we do? Chris was perfectly calm. He leaned back in his seat and said, Drive out to Gawler. James drove them away. The only thing he wanted to do was escape. Chris had brought them to a terrible place on a whole other level. Unfortunately, a car would not provide an adequate means of departure. As they drove on, James's mind was reeling. After all, having a homicidal friend in the passenger seat of his car and a corpse in the back was a new experience for him. Chris said something very odd at one point. I'd kill my own mother if I thought she's put me on. James didn't know what he meant by that and assumed that the less he understood, the better. When they entered the small township of Truro, Chris ordered James to pull over at an isolated spot near a stretch of trees. They both got out to handle the grisly business of dumping the body. James was squeamish and reluctant, but Chris motioned to his pocket, signaling that James's participation would be assured with one fell swoop of his knife. There was no shovel to dig her a shallow grave, so they buried her underneath a layer of natural detritus. As they drove toward Truro, James was still shaking. Chris was quiet, staring out at the night. At one point, Chris said, Was that your first one? Never seen somebody die before? I've seen plenty. James was a cherry in this regard, to be sure. The best comparison he could come up with was, I saw a boy drown when I was just a kid. He was my friend. We were out swimming in the sea, and I watched him drown, and didn't lift a finger to help him. I just watched. James put himself in Veronica's shoes during the moment of her demise. He pictured Chris having sex with him. He felt it would be worth it to die if it meant he could have that moment of intimacy with Chris. He was suddenly jealous of Veronica, and it was heartbreaking. He cried out with no time to restrain it. Not only did Chris not console him, he didn't understand empathy. He had a confession and this disclosure was just as unsettling as the last. That wasn't my last dead body. You know that already, right? Back when I was in the Air Force, running down from Perth to Adelaide on leave, 
I picked up a hitchhiker, a girl, cute little thing. I knifed her. It was so messy. Blood squirting out everywhere. I'd hate to kill somebody like that again. Took me days to get the car clean. This information was deeply upsetting to James, but he was so deeply infatuated with Chris that he still hung on his every word. If Chris had called to issue a death threat, it would have been like phone sex for James. Only to keep Chris talking, he said, and? Now that he knew he had an audience eager for details, a smile creeped into Chris's face. He said, She was the first one, but she wasn't the last. Plenty of hitchhikers between the base and the town. The next girl, I wasn't daft enough to use the knife again. I bashed her head in with a rock instead. That was a lot more fun. Chris moved so close to James, he could feel his breath on his ear. Had Chris been so inclined, he could have kissed James, and of course there would have been no resistance. But of course, James's silence regarding these matters would not be elicited with the promise of a reward. It was through the fear of retaliation that Chris ensured James's discretion. As he said to him, So you know that I'll have no problem doing you if you say a single word about this to anyone. I don't want to speak about tonight. Not now. Not ever again. Do you understand me? There is something about unrequited love that acts like a safe retaining every word and deed issued and carried out by the object of one's affection. James would have no problem keeping this vow. He was already Chris's servant, so his submission and complicity were guaranteed. James nodded, and that was all the confirmation Chris needed. He already knew they had an understanding. It had been a long, eventful, and exhausting evening. Chris was spent, he said, take me home, James. I'm tired, and it's about five minutes until Christmas. Christmas was ruined for James. He may not have known Veronica Knight beyond the introduction, but being an accomplice to her murder left him rattled, and it was impossible to get swept up in the holiday season with all the peace and goodwill toward men. He struggled to be merry among his sister's family, knowing he was the only person at the Christmas Day dinner table who was complicit in a homicide. It was also difficult for him to come to terms with the fact that the man he loved was a cold-blooded killer. He didn't expect to meet any saints in prison, but had he known exactly what Chris was capable of, he would have kept his distance. When Chris and James were reunited, it was at work. To James' astonishment, Chris was back to his old self, joking and smiling. Not a care in the world. James had no blood on his hands, but it was he who was suffering from Chris's actions. It made it seem like the memory of the murder on Christmas Eve was just a bad dream. It would take a delusion like that for him to put the trauma behind him. Ultimately, it was his love for Chris that washed the memory down. Otherwise, it was indigestible. That night, Chris and James went out drinking, perhaps intuiting that the murder had upset James 
Chris decided the best remedy was to pay him his complete and undivided attention. This is what abusers do. When they realize they have crossed a line, they do damage control. Being generous and kind, buying gifts, and turning on the charm. That way, their victim is prepared to take the good with the bad, and they can defend them to other people by insisting that they're not that way all the time. Chris knew James had wanted them to find an apartment together, and he set the wheels in motion to make this happen. He likely did it for selfish reasons, too. Keeping James that close meant he could keep tabs on him and ensure he wouldn't rat him out to the police. James was overjoyed. Not only would he get to live with the man he loved, but he had grown tired of living with his sister. Chris and James resumed their routine of driving the streets in search of prey. Even though James wanted to trade places with the girls, he was happy to serve his master and satisfy his every whim. After hours of cruising, Chris spotted 15-year-old Tanya Kenny, and he was impressed with what he saw. To him, age was nothing but a number. She was eager to get into the car. To her, it was like she was going on her first adventure into adulthood. James's sister was moving out of her apartment, but there was still a couple of days left on the lease. James drove them to the building. Chris told him to wait in the car while he took Tanya upstairs. He placed his hand on James's knee as he did so. Considering the way James felt about Chris, this was comparable to a hand job. James took a nap as he waited. James woke as a shadow was cast over him. It was Chris looking in at him from outside the car. With a poker face, he said, I need your help. The look on Chris's face told James the situation was every bit as grave as he hoped it wouldn't be. When James entered the apartment, he saw Tanya Kenny on the floor. She was still wearing clothes, but her hands and feet were bound with plastic-wrapped wire. A large section of sticking plaster was stuck on her mouth. Trickles of blood were seeping through it and running down her cheek to the carpet. James lost it. Normally unfailingly polite and solicitous toward Chris, the visage of Tanya Kenny's freshly killed corpse propelled him past his breaking point. He started screaming and cursing at Chris. Never one to take shit from anybody for any reason, Chris retaliated with a similar amount of verbal abuse. Both men screamed themselves hoarse for ten minutes. When James went silent, Chris said, Is that it? You finished? James nodded toward Tanya's remains and said, Why? Like a typical criminal, explanations and accountability were irrelevant to Chris and were rarely, if ever, forthcoming. He shrugged and looked out the window. He said, Guess we can't get rid of it now. James was baffled. If you don't want to go dragging dead girls out in broad daylight, then maybe you should stop making them. Chris took a practical stance. We've got a problem to deal with here. You want to help, or do you want to mouth off? James said, I'd much rather mouth off than deal with dead bodies. Chris, speaking past James, said, 
We'll have to move it tonight, but we can go dig a hole for it now. We've got all day. This wasn't good enough for James. We can't leave her there. The landlord could come in, or my sister could come back, or... We can't leave her there. The best short-term solution they could come up with was to put her in a cupboard. When they grabbed her, she was still warm. They propped a chair up against the cupboard door as insurance against a resurrection, apparently. They drove out to Wingham, which is located in the northern outskirts of Adelaide. It was there where they dug a hole in preparation for the disposal of Tanya Kenny's remains. This is a classic strategy from the serial killer playbook. That night, they brought Tanya's cadaver to the hole in Wingham. James helped Chris deposit it into the grave, but he could not bring himself to fill it with dirt. Chris was more than comfortable with covering his tracks. January 1977. Chris and James were cruising just as much as usual. Chris still, on occasion, fell into a dark mood, and James dropped hints that it might help to see a psychiatrist. Chris dismissed this suggestion, insisting he was mentally sound. If James persisted, Chris told him to lay off. Chris never felt a tinge of remorse about what he was doing to these girls, but James never became inured. One night, Chris picked up Juliet Makeda. James was no longer jealous of these girls. Now, all he felt was pity. Add dread and anxiety to his feelings regarding their ultimate fates, and these excursions were driven through the expressways of hell, as far as he was concerned. James was a prisoner of fear. Chris was a stranger to the emotion. He took measures against being apprehended by the police, but it wasn't because he was afraid of them or afraid of being sent back to prison. Getting caught meant he wouldn't get to do what he loved most. The glove compartment of James's car was actually used to contain gloves. After some small talk with Juliet, Chris pulled out his gloves. He asked Juliet to extend her wrist to him. Juliet was reluctant. She was 16 years old and a sexual novice. The very notion of bondage as a sexual outlet didn't exist anywhere within the realm of her understanding. It didn't even occur to her that Chris wanted her for sex. She was still naive enough to negate the possibility that stranger danger posed a threat to her life. Juliet's bewilderment didn't come across as such to Chris. He thought she was playing some sort of game with him, like the only component that was missing was a schoolgirl's uniform. Once they found a dirt road in a suitably isolated location, James took a walk. When he looked back, he saw that Chris and Juliet were necking. Juliet wasn't entirely engrossed in the experience. James didn't get far. He heard someone cry out. He ran back toward the car. Chris pinned Juliet to the ground, and she was struggling to break free from him with little success. Chris sat on her stomach and grabbed her by the throat. She stopped crying out once he choked her silent. James intervened for once. He grabbed Chris by his shirt and yelled, Get off her! Chris didn't budge an inch. He said, Take your hands off me. James wouldn't let up. He tried pulling Chris off her. 
Chris only said, Take your hands off me or you're next. When Chris was thirsty for blood, he accepted no substitute. James was chilled by the look of pure hatred in Chris's eyes. Knowing Chris would kill him if he prevented the murders actually came as a relief to James. If ever he were charged as an accomplice and asked why he didn't stop the killings from happening, he could say that his life was also in danger because Chris elicited his silence under penalty of death. Nevertheless, he still knew the difference between right and wrong, and he knew he was letting people die in order to ensure his survival, which was deeply selfish. It didn't help that he didn't report Chris to the authorities, which could have prevented future murders. Whether willing to accept it or not, James Miller had blood on his hands. Juliet's body grew inanimate underneath Chris's weight. She was dead. Chris turned his attention to James, though not in a way James would have liked. Chris informed James that he spoiled the experience for him. He unleashed a torrent of verbal abuse that only ended once they loaded Juliet's body into the back seat. James didn't say anything. He knew Chris could never be dissuaded. There was no point in arguing with him. The men drove to Truro and dumped Juliet's body by the side of the road, where Juliet Maikita joined Veronica Knight in death. They kicked some sticks over her body. James's love for Chris was total, as always, and he would do absolutely anything for him. This now included assisting him with the murder of young women and the disposal of their corpses. His unconditional love was misplaced. It was reserved for a man who was unable to feel love for anybody. James never questioned or opposed Chris in any way ever again. In fact, James would feel remorse for trying to get in the way while Chris was in the middle of committing murder. James's only fear was that Chris would fall in love with a girl and desert him. Chris wasn't capable of loving anybody, so he needn't have worried. One phenomenon that has been observed in the trajectory of a serial killer's career as a murderer is a so-called cooling-off period. Chris was no exception. James was spared the stress of assisting with Chris's killing spree for a while. It was not to last. One day, Chris spotted a girl named Sylvia Pittman standing outside of a train station. She was a teenager, so her nubile vintage had a natural appeal for him. She wasn't entirely at ease with being approached by older men, but Chris turned on his bullshit charm and he put her at ease. She got into the car with Chris and James, and off they went beyond the boundaries of civilization. When James returned to the car after his walk, Chris was irate. Chris slapped James in his face. He said, If you say one word tonight, I swear to you, I will dump your worthless corpse out in the desert, just like that rag. One word, and you're done for. I'm not going to ask twice. Tears poured from James' eyes, though he was able to contain the verbal manifestation of his distress. This was an abusive relationship. When James looked in the car, 
He saw that Sylvia was fully clothed underneath a rug. Chris strangled her with her pantyhose. They were still tied around her throat. The asphyxiation left her face purple. Her tongue hung out of her mouth. Her entire head was swollen. The appearance of a corpse had never disturbed James like this. Chris drew his knife and patted it against his leg as a signal to James to keep the murder a secret. It appeared that James's worst nightmare was about to come true. Chris was now talking about finding a girl who would occupy a place in his life permanently. He began to talk to his other friends about fixing him up with their daughters, sisters, and friends. This also implicated that Chris might decide to kill James because he knew so much. James ultimately decided he could accept this. The only eyes he wanted to see in the hour of his demise were Chris's, and that was just fine by him. Given that incentive, he would gladly martyr himself for Chris. Chris had been distant toward James as of late, and James decided that one way to remedy the situation was to find a girl for Chris. Providing that sacrificial lamb might appease the deity. Should that have occurred, he just might have found himself in his good graces once again. The problem was, not only did he not know how to approach women and pique their interest, but being so much older than the young women Chris preferred would likely have put them off. He needn't have bothered. Chris found a girl to his liking. It didn't require much effort for him. James saw what girls saw in Chris, so it was hardly surprising that he found a girl so quickly. What he did find surprising was the woman's age. Usually, Chris went for teenagers. This woman, Vicki Howell, was closer to James's age. Though James was not at all pleased that Chris had found himself a woman, James did all he could to be welcoming and put her at ease. Whatever Chris wanted, James would do all he could to provide, and that included contributing to the efforts to make her feel accepted and appreciated by both men. When they found an isolated spot, Chris and Vicky became amorous before James could take his walk. When James returned to the car, he could see Chris, but not Vicky. When he took a closer look, she was still there. She was sprawled out on the back seat. Unlike the others, she was still alive at this point. She was responding to Chris's amorous advances, as James would have. Chris was tying a rope around her wrists while they made out. Vicky was so enraptured, she didn't even notice she was being bound. James fantasized that Chris was tying his wrists together. How he wished that Chris were kissing him as he kissed Vicky. Chris didn't even want him to watch. He grabbed James' cigarettes and threw them out the window, saying, Get out of here, you old peeping Tom. James hazarded one last glimpse before Chris descended back down on his prey like a vulture. During his walk, he was tortured by the image of Chris having sex with anybody but him. But the silver lining was that this woman would at least emerge from their encounter alive. James still didn't feel sorry for these girls. The way he saw it, they should have known better than to get into a male stranger's car. 
he felt they brought it on themselves. When James returned, Chris was leaning against the bumper, smoking a cigarette. He was scowling. Vicky wasn't present. Without any provocation on James's part, Chris unleashed a volley of slander, castigating every fiber of James's being. His sexual orientation, intelligence level, his physical appearance. Chris was suddenly very determined to knock James down a few pegs. His fists were bald as he grew increasingly enraged. He lunged toward James, though this time James didn't cower. This Chris could not accept. He was the dom, James was the sub. No dom is willing to change places. This was very unpleasant for James, but it wasn't a new experience. He had seen Chris in these moods before, and he had also been the recipient of similar abuse. He had heard the talk, but never seen the action. He also knew Chris was dependent upon James to provide the chauffeur services that enabled him to abduct and kill the women. The relationship was based upon mutual advantage, far more than he was willing to admit. After Chris screamed himself out of breath, James misted his embers. It's all right. Don't worry about it. It's fine. We're fine. Chris finally settled down. He said, She is in the back seat, under the blanket. I killed her. You get that, right? James smiled and nodded. So, we need to get rid of the body, right? Just like before? It is no problem, ma'am. This placated Chris. James knew how to shift his levers by this point. In a platonic, indirect way, they were intimate partners. James recognized Chris's behavioral patterns and adapted accordingly. As if estranged from himself, Chris reflected on his actions and said, She seemed like such a nice lady. James shrugged and said, Oh well, plenty more fish in the sea. Onwards they headed toward Truro, where they dumped Vicky by the side of the road and concealed her body under a pile of sticks. Chris was a murdered junkie. It wasn't long after he got his fix that he found himself jonesing once again. Typically, he could only withstand a day of withdrawal before he was desperate to slake his thirst for blood. A day after he slaughtered Vicky Howell, Chris was on the prowl with James as his designated driver. Connie Iordanides was not as amenable to Chris's affections as the other girls. She was an awkward girl, and when she realized the men were driving her in the opposite direction of her family's home, she panicked and began to scream. Chris planted his hand over her mouth. She struggled and scratched at him. When he brought the rope out of his pocket, she became more hysterical than ever. He managed to wrap the rope around her hands and planted her on the floor of the back seat. Connie's screaming was choked inaudible with Chris's hands. He had never been so reckless as to rape and restrain a woman in traffic. James heard the sound of cotton being torn, followed by the familiar refrain of the dissension of Chris's fly. 
James pulled the car over to the side of the road on the outskirts of a town called Wingfield. Chris didn't bother to wait for James to take a walk. Connie's face was red. Her eyes were bulging and rolling. She wriggled desperately in a futile attempt to escape from Chris's grasp. It was all in vain. He was a seasoned pro. Chris was playing cat and mouse games with Connie's vital signs, choking her to the brink of death and releasing her just in time to watch her gasp her way back to life. Sometimes he did it in tandem with his sexual undulations. Permitted to witness this act, James reached down to his groin to touch himself. Somehow Chris caught him red-handed. He said to him, Isn't it time for your walk? As an unfathomable act of defiance, James turned the tables on Chris and said, I, I am fine where I am. Connie cried out, but was muted by Chris's iron vice grip. He said to James, Get out of the car. James, still standing his ground, but also pleading with Chris, said, I can stay. I can watch. It is all right. You don't have to... You don't have to hide anything from me, Chris. Chris wasn't sold. Get out of the bloody car, and don't forget your bloody cigarettes this time. Chris would always prevail over James, and this occasion was no exception. James took a walk. Consistent with his custom during one of his walks, James smoked cigarettes. This time, he only smoked one before he heard the sound of one of the car's doors slamming. James ran up to the car to inspect the damage. James saw that a blanket had been spread out over Vicky. Neither of them commented on it. That made it easier for the both of them. Chris wasn't in such a foul mood this time. He said to James, You did all right tonight, you know that? Chris knew as an abusive partner that from time to time you have to do damage control. He must have also known how much James starved for his approval, like a tapeworm with a tapeworm. It was reflected in his response. Yeah? Chris didn't want him to get so cocky. He had to keep him yearning so that he would continue to do his bidding. Not bad, not great, but not bad. Don't make it weird again. James could never please Chris enough. I'll do better next time, I promise. Money couldn't have bought a better accomplice. Still, Chris didn't want him to rest on his laurels. Making it weird again, mate. Just do what I need, yeah? And don't get so involved. It's not about you, you know? In the presence of Chris, James had such a poor self-concept. He would have apologized for being alive. With excessive contrition, he said, I know, mate. Sorry. Wasn't trying to spoil anyone's fun. Didn't understand what you wanted before, but I think I do now. Chris said, Don't worry about it. Let's take a drive, yeah? Customarily, they took Chris's freshest kill and deposited her on the side of a road leading to Truro. James served up the latest course in the scavenger's banquet with an appetizer of natural detritus, courtesy of Chef Worrell. Hell's Kitchen, indeed. To James's horror, Chris met a woman named Amelia that he chose to keep company with beyond the parameters of casual sex and post-coital indifference. 
Hell, she was special enough that he wanted to keep her warm to the touch. Considering his body count, this was truly meaningful. While Chris envisioned a future of lovemaking, kissing, hugging, and holding hands, James's imaginings portended a grim destiny of a life lived alone, a disposable redundancy in Chris's life. Once a chauffeur, now a third wheel. He liked Amelia. He could even foresee becoming her friend. But unbeknownst to her, she was breaking his heart in cahoots with Chris. He would drop the both of them off at her apartment, and it was a scene that played out like an image contained within a mirror pointed at a mirror. It was something Chris and Amelia hoped to duplicate in perpetuity. But for James, the horrors of infinity played out like the contemplation of death. Now that Chris's companionship, the only thing that gave his life meaning and made it worth living, it was slipping out of his grasp, the afterlife was looking more and more like paradise, even if his involvement with Chris's murders was unlikely to land him in any place that resembled heaven. Chris's relationship with Amelia notwithstanding, he and James still went cruising together. This time around, a girl would seek them out. Either Deborah Lamb was ignorant of the perils of stranger danger, or she simply didn't care. She flagged down James's car. She said, Hi, fellas. You going my way? Uncharacteristically, Chris played the part of hard to get. Depends on where you were heading, I guess. She couldn't have been more ideal as a victim. She was a chronic hitchhiker with no apparent ties to family or a fixed address. They offered her a ride to Port Gawler. They stopped at a beach. A popular bumper sticker in the 1970s read, Gas, grass, or ass. Nobody rides for free. Clearly, Deborah had read this sticker, for she was pulling down her panties as she got out of the car. James announced he was taking a walk and left. Chris and Deborah fell to the sand and got on with their business. James hoped that Deborah's consent was something that Chris could accept. He wanted sex, and if she was more than willing to give it to him, maybe he would be content to receive it and let her live. He hadn't killed Amelia, so that was a good sign. There is a fine line between optimism and stupidity. Chris was kicking sand over the shallow grave he had just dug for Deborah. Unbeknownst to James, Deborah was still alive under the sand, drawing her last few breaths. Chris and James met another Deborah, Skews that is. They met her after she was dumped by one of their mutual friends. She was distraught, and James consoled her. Chris left this endeavor to James, given that he was the only one of the two of them who was sufficiently equipped for the task. James was patient with her, but Chris would have made an incompetent therapist. He found Deborah's anguish and self-pity tiresome. He came up with a plan that might have made them both feel better. They would take a trip to Mount Gambier for the weekend. He insisted that having a couple days of fun with friends would serve as a distraction from her sorrow. Seeing value in this solution, she agreed to go, and preparations were made. The trip didn't go so well. Chris turned on the charm as he chatted with Deborah Friday night. But she wasn't amenable to having sex so they retired to their separate quarters. 
He was in a foul mood the rest of the weekend. After all, he hadn't gotten what he wanted. On the way back, Chris was driving for a change. James was relegated to the back seat. Deborah was instructed to ride shotgun. She was uneasy as Chris was driving at the vehicle's top speed. Deborah begged him to slow down, but he ignored her. He only acknowledged her when she pulled a beer bottle away from his reach. He snatched it back from her. This was worse than any other behavior James witnessed in Chris, and he was at his wit's end. He hoped they would be pulled over by police once they caught a glance at his speeding. They would straighten Chris out. James's cowardice negated any possibility of doing so. He was far too lovelorn to even so much as shout him down. Chris made it clear to Deborah that she wasn't about to put a cap on him either. I've got a headache, you stupid bitch. Shut up. Deborah wouldn't relent, not with her safety so gravely at risk. Please slow down. Just slow down. I don't want to die. Chris said, You think I'm stupid? You think I don't know how to drive? Just shut up, will you? She was beside herself with terror. Slow down. You're going to crash. Will you shut your damn mouth? I am trying to drive here. A tire blew out. Chris slammed on the brakes, but the car fishtailed. The car slipped and slid across the lane into oncoming traffic. To avoid driving straight into a truck, he drove off to the side of the road. Safety was not waiting for them there. The car flipped and rolled twice down an embankment. All three of them were flung out the windows as it rolled. The car settled on a stretch of grass. Traffic on the road screeched to a halt, and good Samaritans rushed to the scene of the wreckage to offer their assistance. Tending to the passengers' injuries was beyond their abilities, and all they could do was remain at the spot as they awaited the arrival of first responders. An ambulance came, but only James Miller received medical attention. Chris Worrell and Deborah Skews were dead. James Miller's physical recovery had him laid up in hospital for several weeks. The injury to his soul? That was another matter entirely. The love of his life was dead, and he felt like he might die of a broken heart. He only spoke when spoken to, but otherwise, he had checked out. Chris was dead, and wherever he was, that was the only place James wanted to be. He would have gladly joined him as he suffered the tortures of the damned in hell, if that meant that they could spend eternity together. James checked himself out of the hospital so he could attend Chris's funeral. At one point, he approached Amelia to have a talk. She was the only other person at the event that knew him intimately. That is, she thought she knew him. James was about to reveal a side of Chris from which she was lucky to have been sheltered. He opened with, Did they tell you the results from the autopsy? At first, she didn't recognize James. He was so covered with bruises and other injuries. She shook her head. James said, I think that he had a brain clot, a blood clot in his brain. I mean, I've been trying to get him to talk to someone for months. He has these moods. He, he had these moods when he was so angry. He just got so angry about nothing. And you had to get him away from people, you know. He wasn't right. This was news to Amelia. She shook her head. James continued, I'm just saying maybe it was for the best, you know. 
that it happened like this instead of some other way? I mean, I wish it hadn't happened at all. Of course, I wish it hadn't happened. But if he had to die, maybe it was better that he got to die like this instead of somewhere worse. Amelia wept. She was indignant and confused. She said, What could be worse than this? What the hell are you talking about, James? He said, He had to die, Amelia, or it would have kept on happening. He would have kept on going forever. I wasn't going to stop him. You weren't going to stop him. The police didn't even stand a chance. Amelia brought them to a less populated area of the garden in which they stood. James went on. He wasn't bad, Amelia. You know that he wasn't bad. I'm... I'm not bad either. I just didn't want him to get in trouble, is all. So I knew about it, and I didn't do anything because he is Chris, you know. I'd never do anything that might hurt him. She shushed him. She said, Calm down, James. Just tell us what happened. What did Chris do? James kept all of Chris's crimes inside of him as a burdensome secret, and instead of lying dormant, as it did inside Chris, with James, it felt more like a pressure cooker, and it was boiling over. James filled Amelia in on the truth about the man they loved. He killed them. He just choked the life out of them. I don't know why he did it. I don't even think he knows why he did it. I tried to stop him, but he said he'd kill me too. You didn't know him like I did. You didn't know what he was capable of, what he was really like. I thought he was going to kill you too when I first met you. I was so ha happy to see you here because it meant that he hadn't gotten to you before the end. You've got to understand, he wasn't a bad guy. You knew him, you know he was a good guy, yeah? It was just, he had these black moods, and you never knew when they were coming. And you never knew what he was going to do when they happened, you know? He could be fine and chatting happily with you one minute, and screaming his head off the next. Oh God, he killed a couple of them before I even met him. I don't know what to do about, I don't know what to do about any of them. Do I tell the police? I mean, what's the point, right? Chris is already... He's done. He's never going to do it again, and the girls aren't going to come back just because their families know where they are. What is the point? What's the point of doing anything? Because he's gone now. He's gone. James broke down into tears. Amelia was mortified. She took his hand. She said, Chris killed somebody? James said, He killed girls, Amelia. A lot of them. Something was wrong in his brain, and it made him go violent. And sometimes he would be out on a date and he would just shut up, Jim. He hoped for more empathy and understanding than what was manifested through the following response. Just keep your mouth shut about all this, alright? There's a lot of folks gets killed in the south of Australia without any help from our Chris. And I'm not having him made into a scapegoat for every bad thing that's happened here since the bloody British landed. You hear me? Keep your lips together and forget whatever you think you know. Like you said, Chris wasn't like that. He was a good man, one of the last of them. I don't want anybody tainting his memory. Do you hear me? It didn't take a traumatic car accident to break James's backbone 
He was born spineless. In keeping with this standard, he said, I understand. Amelia took a swig from her beer and let go of his hand. She dispatched him with, Right, bugger off then. We're done. James left the funeral and walked to the street, where he would walk alone for the rest of his life, without Chris at his side. April 1978. William Thomas from Truro was searching for mushrooms in an isolated rural area known as the Barrens, just off Swamp Road. The mushroom harvest was largely unfruitful. Thomas did find something that caught and retained his attention, however. A large bone protruded from some rocks. He wondered if a cow had wandered off a ranch and died in that spot. He left the bone where it was and returned home. Later that day, something about that bone nagged at William. After all, cows have larger bones than human beings. He made plans with his wife to return to the spot the next day, where they would both examine the bone and gather mushrooms together. They found the bone the next day. William was too squeamish to touch it. His wife yanked at it. The bone was still attached to connective tissue, and when she pulled at it, a shoe was unearthed. At first, they assumed it was some kind of morbid practical joke, that a shoe was placed on a cow's bone to fool someone into thinking it was the remains of a human being. Neither of them were laughing when William pulled the shoe off and discovered patches of skin, phalanges, and painted toenails. The Williamses contacted the police, who flocked to the scene to conduct an investigation. Animal scavengers had torn at the body parts, even going so far as to breaking bones to get at the marrow. The police were still able to reverse-engineer the body for an autopsy. The problem was, the long process of decay and the animal predation made it impossible for the coroner to determine the cause of death. His best educated guess was that she was a hitchhiker who had dehydrated. Many people have died that way under the unforgiving Australian sun. Using dental records and items of jewelry that were left on the body, she was identified as Veronica Knight. She had been missing for two years. 1979. Two hikers discovered a human skeleton less than a mile away from where Veronica Knight's remains were found. Zeroing in on the identity and cause of death was challenging due to the advanced stage of decomposition and scavenger predation. She was identified by authorities as Sylvia Pittman. Major Crimes Detective Sergeant Bob Giles became determined to solve the case of who was responsible for the disappearances of several young women. He applied to his superior officers to conduct a full-scale investigation, but they would not issue the necessary resources to do so. Giles turned to the media in hopes that civilians might have some valuable data to contribute. Newspapers offered a $10,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of the perpetrator. Facing pressure from the public, the police commissioner announced that the bodies found outside of Truro had, quote, always been considered suspicious and, quote, had always been investigated as murders. This was after they had initially done nothing. They created a task force from the Major Crimes Unit, 
but Bob Giles was excluded as punishment for communicating with the media. Now that a search was underway, two more bodies were uncovered, Connie Eordanis and Vicki Howell. The public were demanding more action. They were also furious that the police were dragging their feet at the beginning. The public also pressured the local government in Adelaide to resolve the situation. The local alderman promised a reward of $30,000 for anybody who would be inclined to come forward with information about the guilty party. Amelia, perhaps driven by collecting on the substantial reward, reported James Miller to the police. She told them what he had told her. The police tracked him down at a homeless shelter. After hours of intensive questioning, James broke down and admitted his role in the killings as the one who ferried Chris Worrell from location to location in locating, securing, and murdering his victims. One evening, James directed the police to locations just outside of Truro where he remembered burying bodies with Chris. By sunrise, James Miller was slapped with seven charges of murder. 1980. James Miller's trial had begun. He pled guilty to all seven charges. During James Miller's trial, his lawyer tried the tack of portraying Miller as a victim of Chris Worrell, having been bullied into assisting him with the murders. It worked to the extent that when the jury saw how heartbroken James was by the loss of the man he loved, they felt some sympathy toward him. This was all undone when James was asked if he would have ever have turned Chris in. He said, if Chris was still alive and he was still out killing girls every night, I would still be out there driving him and not saying a word. I would never betray Chris. The prosecution painted a portrait of James as a willing participant in the killings. This argument was more effective as an assessment of Miller's role in the murders. It took the jury less than an hour to convict James Miller of six of the murders. The reason he was not convicted for the seventh was it was proven that he was not affiliated with Chris Worrell at the time the murder was committed. James Miller was sentenced to six consecutive life sentences. Miller made an attempt at a retrial after one of the juries revealed that they, along with the rest of the jury, were pressured by the judge to convict Miller. Ultimately, this endeavor was unsuccessful. Miller went on a hunger strike to gain support during this time. He managed to elicit some sympathy from the public, but once again, this was derailed when he reaffirmed his undying love and support for the very guilty and very dead Chris Worrell. James never did learn his lesson. James Miller died from complications of hepatitis C in 2008. On his deathbed, he reiterated that he was in no way responsible for the killings, that it was all Chris Worrell's doing. He didn't even so much as express sympathy for the victims. Nikki Lamb, Deborah Lamb's daughter, always blamed Miller for the murder of her mother. To quote Nikki, his death is a massive relief. There will never be an end to the evil that he did, because I will never have my mother back. But it is the end of a dark chapter, and the beginning of a new one. Thank you for listening to Human Monsters. Bye for now.